At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is M.I.P. With Massimella Matfumal. Mark Thompson. Get woke. We welcome you back to African American History Month on Make It Plain with Anthony T. Browder, founder and director of the IKG Cultural Resources and the ASA Restoration Project, the excavation and restoration of three 25th dynasty tombs of Kushite noblemen on the west bank of Luxor, Egypt. For 43 years, he's been researching ancient, ancient Egyptian history. And he's the first African-American to fund and coordinate an archaeological dig in Egypt and has led more than 30 archaeological missions to Egypt since 2009. Welcome back, brother. Uh, glad you could spend this time with us this month. Uh, my pleasure, man. Thank you for the opportunity. So um, is there still great debate anymore? about our people in, antiqu in antiquity, ancient Egyptians being black or not, being people of dark skin or not. I know those are battles that Dr. Jeffries and others fought. It seems to have quieted down somewhat, but is, is, that, is that something that we still have to defend? Um, I don't defend it. Uh, because it's a foolish argument. It's a foolish debate. And when you argue with the fool, they will drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. Those who know, know, as I stated earlier, that there's a clear distinction between Kemet and Egypt. Kemet is African. The civilization of Kemet existed for almost 3,000 years. It was initiated and maintained by indigenous African people for at least 2,500 of those 3,000 years. Egypt is a Greek word. So Egypt is white, but Kemet is African. So again, if you use the timeline that we talked about earlier, you'll see that there is a clear distinction between the two. And anyone who tries to project a European presence into Kemet is lying or they're a fool, or they're manipulating you for some other purpose. So if we knew our history, we'd be able to shut that down and we wouldn't engage in arguments that have no substance. Um, and and that's, um, that's important to understand. If, if you would, and, and I wanna go back to something you said last episode um, about um, the, uh, a SAR and a set and the process. One, one of the terms we learned 
folks, the term mummy or mummification isn't the right term. It is, I want to have it right. It's, it's Sahu, Sahu, Sahu. Sahu. Mm-hmm. I want, I want to come back to that, but before I do, it, it did not in this debate around um, the Africanity of Egypt was not one of the um, most significant scholars to make that argument, uh, Dr. Sheikh Antajop? Absolutely. It was Sheikh Antajop and his colleague, uh, Dr. Teofilo Binga, who presented evidence at the Cairo Symposium in 1974. It was a gathering of a dozen or so uh, international Egyptologists who met in Cairo to discuss and debate this issue of the race of the Egyptians. Sheikh Antajop brought forth scientific evidence to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Kemet was founded by indigenous African people. Tefalobinga brought a literary uh, text to show similarities between Medu Necher, uh, the language of Medu Necher, and languages in West Africa, Wolof, um, uh, among the Akan, among Yoruba. So there is knowledge among African scholars that Africans in the Nile Valley made six migrational trips from the Nile River Valley to the Niger River Valley and brought their cargo of knowledge with them and jump-started civilizations on, in West Africa. So that information is not widely known, but it's been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. And after the Cairo Symposium, the reporter, a reporter who was present at that event said that Dr. Zobinga and Jope presented such thorough information that there was no response from the other Egyptologists' presence. So what did the white community do? They didn't advertise the conference. They sat on the information. They suppressed the information. And that's the only thing they could do, suppress the truth, because it's too powerful reality for them to accept. And, and that's all, all the more reason why we have to be uh, relentless in documenting the truth and speaking it and teaching it primarily to ourselves. I'm not interested in, in educating someone who doesn't want to learn. I'm not interested in educating my enemy if they have a closed mind and a closed heart. I know, as you stated earlier, if we can get our young children as early as possible to take pride in the ancestry that they have inherited, then that changes the trajectory of of how they move through elementary school, high school, and college. And that's the key to freeing the minds of African people. So the, obviously the, the popular perception of Egypt is Elizabeth Taylor. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> as Cleopatra, mm-hmm. but um, she was a black woman, right? So, so let me let me unpack that. All right, I'm I'm glad you mentioned Cleopatra. So most people don't know that there were seven Cleopatras, and the Elizabeth Taylor persona was the seventh Cleopatra. I mentioned previously that when the Greeks came into Kemet, they married African women because Kemetic. Uh, Lineage is determined by the bloodline of the mother. So the mother determines who will be the king. So Greek men, white men, married African women 
so that their children would be considered the legitimate heirs to the throne of Egypt. So Cleopatra was a mulatto. She would be classified in today's language as a mulatto um, or a Negro in South Africa, a black person in South Africa. So, you know, it was Thomas Jefferson in Notes for the State of Virginia who said that one drop of black blood makes anybody black. So Hollywood has been responsible for perpetuating this false narrative of African history. And because people have been conditioned to accept information without questioning it, we also have bought into the lie, but that lie can be easily destroyed with documented evidence which exists right now. You told um, the story in our last, on our last broadcast of the dismemberment of Osiris. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, first of all, let me get ahead. I'm getting ahead. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let, let, let me let me hold that for a minute. I, I want to do this a little more chronologically. Your first trip to Egypt with Dr. Ben was 1980. Yes. In 82, 40 years ago, you founded the Institute for Karmic Guidance. Talk to us. Uh, and, and that's where I first came to encounter you, IKG. Tell us what that what got that started what that was intended to be sure well as you mentioned in in my introduction i've been writing teaching african african american history for almost 40 years now and um when i first went to kemet and returned to dc i came back a changed person there was some bitterness because I was, I was, it was a, sh- I was ashamed that I was almost 30 years old before I learned the truth about who I was. And I was determined then to use my power to educate as many people as possible so that they would not spend so much of their life, as much of their lives as miseducated as I was. So I created IKG. My very first lecture series was at the University of Maryland. I I did a seven part series entitled uh, Journey to Enlightenment. And um, after that series was completed, I came into Washington DC and repeated that series at WPFW, a local radio station uh, here in DC. And I then started organizing other other lectures and and created other opportunities to share additional information that I had been exposed to by, by some of the scholars that you mentioned in our very first broadcast. And so at that time, brother, you know, I didn't know a lot about uh, African history prior to traveling to Egypt with Dr. Ben in 1980, but I was interested in Egypt and the, the metaphysical knowledge that was associated with Egypt. So I attended a lot of classes that were conducted by, by white folk, to be quite honest with you. And I was I was interested with this information. A lot of it talked about karma and how cause and effect uh, governs many aspects of our lives. But it wasn't until I went to went to Egypt and came back and realized that Egypt is black. But the people that I have been going to, people I've been depending on to give me some sense of self, have been lying to me because they never said that the ancient Egyptians were black. So here I, I had to make a decision. I cannot continue to trust my heart, my mind, and my soul to people who are either ignorant or intentionally deceiving me. 
and I chose to walk a different path. And that's when I began to immerse myself in the study of, of now Valley history and culture and fulfill my mission to share this information with as many people as possible so that I can instill within their consciousness a new narrative of who we were so that we can live up to our potential uh, of who we are. More MIP after this message. And, and so thankful you did that. Folks, for those who were in the DMV particularly, and we weren't even called a DMV yet back then. Right. Uh, <laughs> it was good, man. It was Chocolate City. It was Chocolate City. Right, right. I mean, Tony would organize these lectures with these iconic scholars. And it was it was humongous. It was huge. Um, and then by the time I came on the scene, um, we started inviting because Tony had introduced us to all these great people. And so we started having them at, at, at UDC exactly. and there was a, a small building part of UDC's campus in the middle of Howard University's campus. And we'd have them up there and it would just be folks. It was, they would be so big. We had to put speakers outside mm -hmm. um, for everyone to, to hear what was going on because every, it was just knowledge and information was so rich. And I'll tell you something else too, Tony, I never said this to you, to you before. So, uh, 1980, when you were with, when you met Dr. Ben, I mean, I was still in 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 high school. I mean, it's, it's 15 years between us. Mm -hmm. You helped me understand Earth, Wind, and Fire. Absolutely. Now, not that there was anything not to understand. Earth, Wind, and Fire was bad. We was feeling them. Mm -hmm. but then you went to he, you took us to a whole nother. Wait a minute. This this where Earth, Wind, and Fire was really trying to tell us, <laughs> and we most of us didn't get. We were just jamming, you know. And, and I mean, I, Earth, Wind & Fire was big when I was still a kid, but I'm talking about folks in, in my mom's generation who were just jamming Earth, Wind & Fire, but they weren't saying to us, this is what this is really all about. And so then I started, so wait a minute, this is what Earth, Wind & Fire has been trying to tell us. And and folks, just so you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll let the cat out of the bag. The plan is, and we'll get into the project, is... Um, when the restoration project is, is fully up and everything is ready to be uh, unveiled and the, the center opens in Egypt, uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, the plan is for them to be there uh, and, and, and to perform there, God willing. Uh, and then we're going to I mean, I don't know. I think that might be a Teutonic shift, man, because to then we will we will truly have come. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Full circle. That's the plan. <laughs> I hope I hope we can uh, we can we can handle that. And and one of the things that um, Tony Browder uh, did, folks, uh, during all of this time was establish the uh, the trip Egypt on the uh, Potomac, which is enlightening in, unto itself. So that was one of the ways, wasn't it, where you had an opportunity to to like visually hands-on show people what you had discovered absolutely so let me let me back up and and put my journey into context my formal training is in graphic design and advertising i mean i my first first year in college at university of illinois in chicago i majored in architecture i'm from chicago i've always had a fascination with architecture I took two years of architectural courses um, in high school and um, 
1971, I was ready to leave Chicago. I had been shot at for the third time. And, you know, I'd gone to school at, at the University of Illinois with a sister who was in the apartment the night that Fred Hampton was murdered. And we're sitting, we're sitting in the lunchroom and she's telling us what happened. Right. And I'm contrasting what she told us with what I'm hearing on the news, reading in the newspaper. And that's when I began to realize that there are at least two or three different stories going on. And I'm trying to find myself. I'm trying to get an understanding of the world in which I was living. And so uh, I came to the point where I was just ready to leave Chicago because I knew I, I knew that I could not grow in the manner that I needed to grow by staying in Chicago. So I came to Washington, D.C. and changed my major from architecture to design. Graduated from Howard in 74, um, started uh, working at the design studio, and I left that studio in 1979 and created my own business. So I've been self-employed since 1979. My first business was a graphic design company, and that allowed me to make as much money as I wanted to make, working as hard as I wanted to work, and use my money to buy books, to attend lectures, to travel, to see the people who were opening up a new world for me. So um, I look at history through the eyes of an artist, right? That's my gift, that's my talent. I'm not a trained historian. I'm not a trained Egyptologist. I'm not a trained archeologist yet. I've made my living doing these things for the last 35 years. So after my second trip to Egypt in 1985, I came back to Washington and I looked at the Washington Monument. And I said, well, wait a minute, I just saw that in Egypt. And, and so I began researching the history of the layout, design, and development of Washington, D.C. And what I uncovered, Brother Matsumella, was that America's fondling fathers, I don't call them founding fathers, they're fondling fathers, right? They intentionally, they were aware of aspects of ancient Egyptian history, the architecture, the symbolism, and, and the mythology. And they then incorporated those symbols into the development of the United States of America. And then in 1800, the creation of Washington DC, which is the wealthiest and most powerful nation in human history. So the Washington Monument is an iconic symbol which represents the United States of America, but it is a 6,000 year old symbol, African symbol, which represents the resurrection of Asar. So the Egypt on the Potomac field trip was created in order to identify specific structures in Washington, D.C. And, 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 and spaces in D.C. where elements of ancient comedic history, symbolism, art, and mythology are literally embedded in the architecture that people walk around. It's literally hidden in plain sight. So the purpose of that field trip is, pull, is to pull the cover off so that people can see now with understanding what they're looking at and identify the African history that has been hidden in front of their faces all of their lives. And, and to be even more specific, folks, you all, if you've been listening, you've heard me say this before, we talk about phallic symbols. Um, there's even an origin to that. That is literally what the Washington Monument is. Um, and to be clear, Tony, you mentioned Osiris. Before we mention Osiris, we should let people know that Osiris is the Greek name and Asar is the comedic name, correct? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. And then Isis is Aset and Horus is Heru. And this was the 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 
the obelisk, as the Washington Monument is known, represents that um, represents Asar's phallus, right? The the it was the one part of the body that when he was dismembered, his wife Aset could not find, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So to 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 you know just modify the terminology, obelisk is the Greek word for tekken. So that structure is called a tekken, right? And according to the story, Asar's body was cut into uh, numerous pieces and Aset found all of them except her phallus, which according to the myth now, it was thrown in the Nile River and was eaten by a catfish. So fast forward to the present day, 6,000 years later, Egyptians, Arab Egyptians don't eat catfish because of the power of that myth. I mean, myths are powerful things, man. They, they are not just falsifications. They are embedded with profound truths that transcend time and space. And one has to have a, 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 a expanded consciousness in order to understand the jewels that are embedded in the myth so that you can understand the knowledge and then apply that knowledge, that understanding in your life so that you then can be a self-determining human being. Egypt on the Are you still doing those tours? Uh, yeah, we are. Um, we have been forced to modify them because of COVID. Essentially, this is a three-hour activity. We would have a bus pick us up and take us around uh, to various sites. But since COVID, <clears throat> uh, we have not done uh, the field trip using the bus. And last year, in order to uh, meet the demand that people had for the field trips, we created a walking field trip. So what we've done is to focus our attention on 16th Street, which is where we have two Masonic temples and Meridian Hill Park, also known as Malcolm X Park. And within these three structures, there's a host of comedic imagery there that we can use to explain the concept. And then from there, we go into uh, this facility nearby and we have a PowerPoint presentation where we show them the rest of what they will see. So we can give them everything that they would normally see on a regular field trip uh, without having to uh, use a bus. And for those of you who want to partake in that, ikg-info.com, uh, find out more there. Also invite you to check out the acerestorationproject.com. We're, we're teasing that out, building that up. We're going to get Tony to break all of that down in the, the days and shows to come. But he, we're thankful he's with us during African American History Month. We're all, we're all here to learn together. Thank you, Tony. My pleasure, brother. Thank you. More MIP after this message. Folks, as you get older in life and get more experience, the world gets even smaller. Uh, I've never had like a real friend in the White House, but this is someone who was a friend of mine and a friend of so many of us before this administration was elected. We're happy to have with us the principal deputy press secretary for the Biden-Harris administration, Corinne Jean-Pierre, joining us for Black History Month, no less. This is also historic. How are you? Hey there, Reverend. It's so good to see you, Reverend Mark. It's been too long. I remember our our days, uh, our weekends with uh, Joy Reid on AM Joy, which I miss very, very much, but very happy and proud of her and happy uh, Black History Month. Yeah, same, same to you. So um, as much as, and we had to find a time to have a full conversation with you about what's yes. going on with you and your life and your accomplishments, and how <laughs> you but there's so much news. President Biden 
in New York today to address gun violence prevention? What's that all about, Corinne? So as you just said, um, the president and uh, the attorney general, uh, General uh, Merrick Garland is joining uh, the president in New York City. And they're gonna talk about the steps the administration has taken thus far uh, to reduce gun violence and, and how we can be stronger partners uh, with New York City and other cities. Like this is, this is an issue that's happening across uh, the country and we have seen it uh, increase in the past two years. So this is critical to address, important to talk about. Um, the president and the attorney general is going to be joined, uh, is joining or meeting with law enforcement officials uh, alongside elected leaders. That's including Mayor Eric Adams, Governor Hochul, and they're going to have that first meeting um, in New York City it, it, at the NYPD headquarters. And they're going to talk about how they can work on the federal, state, and local level uh, to to really again deal with with this issue, deal with the guns, trying to get guns off the street, uh, deal with repeat shooters off our streets as well. Then after that, which is also really important with, they, with that, what they're gonna do as well, is they're gonna visit with community violence intervention leaders in Queens, which is where I grew up, uh, to talk about community-led work to interrupt gun violence, which is so important to have to bring everyone to the table uh, and not leave any voices behind. And so that is the, the, the final stop that they'll do, uh, they'll do in New York uh, when they're visiting. Uh, Corinne, to the administration's credit, they allotted $5 billion yeah. for community-based violence pre prevention in Build Back Better. We know where Build Back Better is or isn't right now. What's going to happen with that? It, 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 uh, the speculation is that Build Back Better may be broken up into separate pieces. In chunks, yeah. yeah so, the so the president, I'm so sorry, Reverend, I didn't want to step on you there. But the president is going to continue continue to fight for Build Back Better. Um, as you just mentioned, there's five million five billion dollars in that package uh, to deal with uh, get gun violence again, getting uh, guns off our streets, and but also it's it's dealing with making sure that we lower costs for Americans uh, as we're as they're dealing with uh, coming out of this pandemic. Uh, but also a successful year for the president as we talk about the economy and getting people vaccinated. But there's still more work to do. So yes, as you said, there's, it's going to be, and looks like it's going to be in chunks. We're going to continue to fight for it every day. We're talking to members of Congress. This is something that the president is committed to getting done. This is part of his economic policy where we just, again, don't leave anybody behind. But I do want to talk really quickly about the comprehensive gun crime reduction strategy uh, that the president has and that he introduced uh, these executive actions that he introduced last April. And, um, and, and, and it, it includes the historic funding through the American Rescue Plan, which was the first uh, legislation that the president signed when he walked into office. And that was to put more cops on the beat and support community violence intervention programs as we've been talking about, but doing initiatives that are really important, the school program, programming, creating economic opportunities, all of the things, getting to the root causes of gun crime. And so these are the things that um, the president is committed to. There's funding in his uh, proposed budget as well uh, to, to deal with community policing. That's three, $300 million, an additional $300 million for cities, plus another $200 million for community violence intervention. So 
this is, again, this is something that we truly have to tackle. We're seeing a, this very uh, stark uh, increase in gun violence across the country in different communities. And we just have to address it because it's disproportionately uh, affecting our folks, our people, black and brown communities. Indeed, indeed. So a lot of focus on the Supreme Court nomination, but yeah. you also have to deal with ATF. Um, and we know that there were some assaults from the right on that. Obviously, that's important, too, in terms of dealing with gun violence. And, and also, some of the groups, the community-based violence groups, have asked the White House to consider a federal office on gun violence prevention. Is that something that you've heard being talked about or that they might consider? So I don't have anything to uh, to announce at this time. As you know, we're trying to do everything that we can on the federal level to deal with this issue. Uh, and um, and so I know there's been talk about police uh, policing executive orders don't have any anything on that as well. But I do want to share a couple of things that the Department of Justice announced just recently, some actions that they've taken to get guns off the street and to keep our community safe. Uh, that's including seizing over 10,000 guns, uh, arresting over 6,000 homicide suspects. Uh, opening over 37,000 criminal firearm investigations. So those are things uh, that the Department of Justice is doing uh, pretty actively in, in dealing with this, this issue of, of gun violence that we're seeing uh, just across the country again. Thank you, Corinne. Good all to right. see you. Okay, all right, bye-bye. Bye-bye, thank you, Reverend. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.